Sometimes when we write um, emails, um, we're, we're just kind of writing to let people know what's going on in our life. There aren't any particular reasons. We're just kind of updating them. Other times, though, when we write an email, there's actually something specific that we want to address. And interestingly, the same is true in the scriptures. So we have email. We also have b-mail. B-mail would be biblical letters. There are a lot of scriptures that are letters written to various groups of people. Sometimes they're just general. So we come to the letter to the, to the Philippians, and it just seems like Paul wants to, to tell the Philippians, I mean, he's in jail it, under house arrest in Rome, and it just seems to be a letter where he's writing to close friends, just updating him, them of what's going on in his life and kind of the things that he's thinking of. First Peter, um, Peter wrote the epistle um, to um, uh, First Peter, and it was just sent out in general to Christians scattered over a large geographical area, and it seems like he mostly just wanted to encourage them. But most of the letters in the, in the New Testament are actually written for a particular purpose. Sometimes the authors of New Testament books tell us exactly why they're writing, um, and that's actually quite helpful. So Luke, who wrote um, the Gospel of Luke and wrote the Book of Acts, in the first few sentences of each of those books, he tells Theophilus why, exactly why he is writing. And we, we read through, um, we come to the, the epistle to the Galatians, and Paul tells them, I'm writing to you because there are some heresies that are popping up among you, and they need to be discussed. Um, he, Paul writes to Philemon. And he says, I'm writing to you because I'm sending back your slave and I want you to treat him in a new and different way because your slave has now become a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, I'm writing to you, Timothy, because you're young and I want you to know how to lead in the church of Ephesus where I left you. In, it, it makes it very easy when we get precise statements from the authors of why they're writing. But we don't always get that. And Colossians is one of those letters that we don't have specifically from Paul why he wrote it. But you know, if, if we were to read, if I were to read the last email that you sent to your mom, and maybe you had some specific things that you were talking to her about, like send money or whatever, um, if I were to write, read your email, I might not know exactly what the background is, but by paying attention to what's in there, I could get an idea of what caused you to write that. And the same is true for the epistles where we don't have an exact statement of why, like Colossians. If we pay attention, we can get an idea of what it is that the biblical writer is writing about, what the concerns are for them. When we look at the book of Colossians, we start to get some clues. And the clues come out to be this, and this all ties into... um, to our text this morning, which I'll read in just a moment. Um, it seems, but it's not precise, um, it seems that this young church was planted in Colossae by Epaphras, and even while they were just still young Christians, some people came from the outside who seemed like they were, had kind of Jewish backgrounds from the, the clues that we draw. And, and they were essentially saying to these young Christians, you know, it's really good that you've started with Jesus. But now, if you really want to be spiritual, there are other things that you have to add into your life. You have to add in some, some legalistic rules 
about things that you can't touch, things that you can and can't eat, things that you can and can't drink. And, and on top of that, um, if you really want to be spiritual, you have to start celebrating some of the Jewish feasts and festivals, and you have to do the, um, the Jewish Sabbath if you really want to be spiritual. And if you really want to be spiritual, you've got to understand some deeper mysteries of, of the universe and of angels. And Paul is writing to the church in Colossae because these, these people have come in and what is at root behind everything that they're saying is that they are saying that Christ is not enough. That it's good to start with Christ, but you have to add other things in. So if you want a summary of the main reason why Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, it is because he wanted to convince them that Christ is enough. And that theme keeps coming up throughout the letter of the Colossians, that Christ is enough. Thomas Akempis was a writer in the 1300s, great spiritual writer, wrote The Imitation of Christ, and I love the way that, that he puts the same truth. He says, whoever has Christ is rich and has enough. That would be a great summary of the book or, or the letter to the Colossians. Whoever has Christ is rich and has enough. All right, there's the whole sermon in a nutshell. But now I've got to show it to you in the text, right? Now I have to actually show you where that comes from. So um, we've, we've looked in, in, in our first two sermons on the book of Colossians, uh, or the letter. We have looked at, um, at Paul's prayer for the Colossians. We've heard Paul giving thanksgiving for these, these new believers that have grown up in this, this town. We've heard Paul and, and kind of forecasting where he's going. Paul has talked about the supremacy of Christ in all things. Paul has told them that he wants them to be united in love, that he wants them to know Christ in them, the hope of glory. Paul's talked about his passion for them and his ministry for them. And now, when we get to Colossians 2, 6, Paul's going to get into the bulk of the purpose for why he's written this letter. So everything leading up to Colossians 2, 6 is to, to begin to prepare them for what he's going to say. Everything after Colossians 2.23, starting with chapter 3, verse 1, everything after this is based upon what Paul teaches. So you read all the commentaries, and they also go, this is the central core of the letter to the Colossians. So let's start with verses 6 and 7. This is Colossians chapter 2. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. So Paul gives us three images here. He gives us the image of, of the path, the image of a plant, and the image of a building. All right? In the image of the path, Paul wants the Colossians, and by extension us, he wants us to continue to follow Jesus, to continue to walk with Jesus, not just kind of every once in a while, but to have a thread through our lives that is continually following, following Jesus. And, and he wants us to follow Jesus the same way that we accepted Jesus. We accepted Jesus by faith. 
And we said, Jesus, come in and be the leader of our lives. And that was based completely and entirely on what Jesus has done. And Paul wants us now to continually walk with Jesus in that same kind of faith. Um, because, in contrary, contrary to the other people who are trying to disciple, incorrectly disciple the Colossians, Paul wants us to know Jesus is enough. Christ is enough. So continually walk in Christ. Um, which means that there are things that we can specifically do as, as the followers of Jesus to ensure that we're continually walking with Christ. There are things that we can put into every day and every week and every month, every semester and every year of our lives to constantly remind us to continually walk with Jesus. Very basic. Every morning when you wake up, pray. Say, good morning, Jesus, and dedicate your day to him. Every night before you go to sleep, put your head on the pillow. If you fall asleep too fast, then before you put your head on the pillow, pray and thank Jesus for the day. We talked this last year about how easy it is to do a daily self-examination. Someplace in the middle of the day or anywhere in the day that works for you, just take five minutes and review the last 24 hours with Jesus and say, Jesus, is there anything that I missed? Is there anything you want me to notice? Community groups that we're signing up for. Community groups are an incredible way to remind us regularly to continually walk with Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we get to the point where we, we get away from Christian community, we stop walking with Jesus in, in that same intentionality. Sometimes we can even be coming to church every week, and yet we're not in community, so we are not continually walking with Jesus. So what are the things that you can put into your life to actually do what Paul says to here to ensure that you are continually walking with Jesus. Second image that Paul gives us is the image of the plant. And here Paul wants the Colossians and us, he wants our roots to go down deep into Christ. Deep into Christ. And this is not new imagery. We come across the imagery of the plant a lot in the scriptures. Remember Psalm, um, chapter, or Psalm 1 where, where we talk about the tree that is, that is beside the living, streams of living water. And then in Jeremiah 17, it's almost like Paul must have been thinking about this whenever, because Paul writes about plant imagery as well. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says this, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green, and they never stop producing fruit. And then in Ephesians 3, Paul writes, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. Paul has a thing about that. He wants every Christian, he's already said that he wants to present every Christian complete in Christ. He wants every Christian to have our roots go deep into Christ so that we will be strong, so that we will be resilient, so that when, when, when the stresses come, when the distractions come, when the struggles and, and, and the trials come, we still produce spiritual fruit. So, what are the things that you can weave into your life daily, weekly, monthly, this semester and this year? What are some things that you can intentionally weave into your life so that your roots will go down deep into Christ? And, I mean, probably one of the most foundational is just get back to the Gospels and, and see what Christ is like. 
remember encounters directly with Jesus. But you know, it's not just the Gospels because we, we see Christ preached throughout the New Testament and then when we do our research, we find out, oh, he was preached throughout the Old Testament as well. So, so back to Scripture to remind us of, of going deep into Christ. Um, other things that we can do. Abiding prayer. I mean, we're used to praying when things come up, right? Abiding prayer is a way that we go deeper in, roots, in our roots with Christ because we try to be aware of him every moment of the day as much as we possibly can. Identifying, we can, in a few weeks we're going to do our next spiritual gifts and holy calling class. Identifying your, your spiritual gifts and your holy callings is, helps you figure out how Jesus wants to work through you to change the world. It's a way to sink our roots deep into him so that we are strong and resilient and continually producing spiritual fruit. Well, the third image that Paul gives us here is the image of the building. And this is, again, a common image that Paul uses. He wants us to build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he says that Christ is the only foundation that is even safe to build our lives on. Jesus talks about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, everyone who hears my teaching and puts it into practice is like the person who builds their house upon a rock. When the storms come down and the waters rise and the winds blow, that rock is going to stand secure. But those who don't build their lives upon the rock, when the, when the rains come down, when the waters rise and when the blow, winds blow, that house, Jesus says, will crumble. It will come down with a loud crash. So, what are some things that we can do to ensure that we're building our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the only sure and solid rock. You guys who've grown up in the church know the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. So what are some things that you can do to make sure that your education is built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, so that your vocation is built on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ? What are things that you can do so that your friendships and your relationships, so that your family, so that your marriage, what are things that you can do to make sure that they are built upon Christ and not other foundations that will waver and cause you to crash? And you know what, guys? This is the time to figure this out. As you are young adults, this is the time to figure out how to build on Christ because you're building the the first and second stories of your life and you're going to get to a point where you're up in the fifth and sixth story of your life and if that foundation isn't built on Christ then you will face because the storms always come all right live long enough and the storms will come now's the time to find ways to build your life your marriage your education your vocation your friendships on the firm foundation of Jesus and then the second half of verse 7, Paul tells us what will happen if we do these three things, okay? If we will continually follow Jesus, if we will walk with him, if we put our roots deep into him and build our lives upon him, then look at what happens. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you are taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Your faith will grow strong. I don't know about you, but I want, when my faith is tested, I want it to be absolutely solid. I don't want it to waver. 
I want my faith to go. I want my trust in Jesus to be so strong that I know that if he ever sends me out to do something, I can boldly go there because he will empower me if he has sent me. I want my faith to be so strong that, that I know that when I cry out to him and say, Jesus, show me the direction that I should go. Jesus, show our church the direction we should go in, in vitality. I want our faith to be so strong that we have absolute confidence that he will do that very thing. And then look at what happens. Not only does our faith grow strong in the truth we were taught, but then we begin to overflow with thankfulness. That is fascinating. One of the marks, one of the ways we can identify people who have, have continually walked with Christ and whose roots have gone deep into Christ and who have built their lives upon Christ, those people are thankful people. If you want to be more joyful in your life, more filled with praise and thanksgiving, Paul tells us how. Have you ever noticed that, that the Christians that we most like being around, the ones that are the deepest, they have this mark of thankfulness. So I want to ask you, what is your TQ? What is your thankfulness quotient in your life? That is a direct reflection of your walk with Jesus. Because the more you walk with him, the more you sink your deep your roots deep into him, the more you build your life upon him, the greater will be your thankfulness. And here's part of what I hope. I hope the people that know me best think, oh, wow, there's a thankful person. Because that means that I am walking closely with Christ. But all this said, there is a danger. So in verses 8 through 10, the first word in verse 8, Paul says, beware. Danger. Be alert. Be aware. Here's what Paul says. And, and in, in the original text, it's, it's beware. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human form. So you also are complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and every authority. The Apostle Paul doesn't want us to get distracted from this foundation, this rootedness, this walk with Jesus. And there are all kinds of things out there to distract us. For the Colossians, it was these people saying you need to add these legalistic rules and you have to add these, these understandings of deeper mysteries. That's the those were the distractions for the Colossians. If Paul was writing to our generation, I'm pretty sure he'd say something about our busyness and how our busyness just keeps distracting us from the truth that, that we are complete through our union with Christ. How our busyness, and you know that it happens, right? When we get busy, our spiritual practices drop off. When we get busy, we just forget to pray. When we get busy, we, we lose our Christian community. We don't have the same spiritual conversations. There are so many things in the world that distract us from the fact that Christ is enough. And here's what Paul wants the Colossians and us to know. He wants us to know that we are complete already in Christ because in Christ lives all the fullness of God. If we are in Christ, then we are complete. Guess what? You don't need all the stuff that that busyness is pursuing after. You're already complete in Christ. You are enough because Christ is enough. 
You don't have to run after all those things that the world wants you to run after. You don't have to run after all the expectations that everybody else has on your life. You don't have to be the victim of busyness that distracts you from being complete in Christ. And here's why it matters. All of our busyness will never satisfy us. The only thing that busyness promises us or that that accomplishes in us is it makes us get more busy and more busy and more busy until we get exhausted. And then our busyness just condemns us that somehow we're not keeping up with the pace of the world. And the sad thing is we can keep up with the pace of the world, but if we do, we will lose pace with Christ. We won't be walking with him, rooted in him, and built up in him. So one of the skills for a Christ-centered life, one of the skills that we've got to learn is how to strangle the distractions from being anchored on Christ. There are things in our lives that may not be bad. There are other things that are I mean, just neutral. There may even be things that sound good. Obviously, there are sins. But if we don't learn to strangle the things that compete with Christ, then in 10 years, we're not going to be any more anchored than we are right now. And in 10 years, the stresses will be greater. So what do you need to strangle in your life that's getting in the way of being anchored completely on Christ? Let's stop chasing after everything in the world, after the success of the world, the expectations of the world, the the goals of the world, to get the right job, to get the right grades, to, to make the right choices. Let's stop chasing after all those things because we don't need them. We are already complete in Christ. We don't have to strive anymore. And then Paul goes into, in the next five verses, he, and I'm going to run through these a little bit quickly, he goes into five illustrations for how Christ is enough. And so verse 11, first illustration is, is circumcision. Um, verse 11, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Christ is enough because when we came to Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, he performed this cutting away of our sinful nature. Prior to coming to Christ, our sinful nature just gets control over our lives. But when we came to Christ and put our faith in him, He destroyed the power of sin to absolutely control us. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still need to grow. But in Christ, we now, because he has performed this spiritual circumcision, we can choose not to sin. We can choose. We have the the power, the enablement from, from Jesus because he gave us this when we came to Christ. So Paul says in Romans 6, 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You realize you don't have to choose sin. Temptations can come up in your life, and even if it's an ingrained habit, you don't have to choose that because Jesus has cut away your sinful nature so you can start to build a life around holiness and mercy and compassion and kindness. You are no longer a slave to sin. Second vivid illustration that, that Paul gives us in verse 12, he says, For you, it's from it's baptism. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised 
to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. It's that that wonderful picture, and Paul explores this in in Romans chapter 6 as well. It's that wonderful picture of of in baptism, we are identified with Christ so that we are spiritually buried with Christ, so we've died to that old nature. But the really cool thing is, because we believed in the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead, God spiritually raises up us to live a completely new life. So we have been raised up. We've come come out of the waters of baptism as Christians to live a whole new life, a life of selflessness, a life of sacrificial love, a life of the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. We have been empowered because of Christ. We have been empowered to live a whole new life so that the mercy and compassion and justice of Jesus is carried out through our lives. Christ is enough because Christ has empowered us to live a new life. Third illustration is um, death and life. Paul says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. It wasn't yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. Sin is not just like this this little oops. The scriptures tell us that the consequences of sin is death. The scriptures consistently teach us that we were dead in our sins. But then Christ came into our life and we have been raised to live that new life of, of grace and goodness and kindness. We were dead but now we are alive. Don't you want to be fully alive? You, you don't want to go through life in, in this fog, in this, this um, mist of not knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. I want to be fully alive. Jesus Christ has made that possible because I have been raised to be spiritually alive in a way that I never could have been before Christ. Interesting, um, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave that, that next word, all our sins. He's forgiven all our sins. That means there is no sin that we can ever imagine that is greater than the power of God to forgive us in Christ Jesus. So if you're carrying anything, then confess it and you will be forgiven in Christ Jesus. More on that in just a moment. But Christ is enough because of his death on the cross on our behalf. Christ is enough because we have been made spiritually alive in him. Fourth illustration, verse 14. Paul writes, he, God, God canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. God has canceled every record of our sin. Every record of our sin. God says that when he forgives us, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. God says when he forgives us, he buries our sins in the deepest ocean. I like how one person said once, God buries my sins in the deepest ocean, and then he puts up a sign that says no fishing. A story was told of a pastor who, um, who had a, a woman in his congregation who was always saying that she heard from God. And he kind of got annoyed with her, and so he decided he was going to challenge her. And there was a secret sin that he'd committed in seminary. And so he went to this woman in annoyance and said, so if God really speaks to you, 
Next time God talks to you, ask him what my secret sin was in seminary. And if, if God speaks to you, then you'll tell me and I'll be able to know that it's really true. Next week, he meets her. So did you speak with God? And she says, actually, yes, I did. And actually, I asked God, what was the secret sin that you committed while you were in seminary? And the pastor says, what did he say? And she said, God says he doesn't remember. That's what it means to have the record of the charges against us completely washed away. We are whiter than snow. We are not just forgiven, but we are purified from all unrighteousness. That kind of total forgiveness tells me that Christ is enough. We're never held back by our past sins. We might have to break some habits, but we are never stained. All our guilty stains are gone because of the blood of Jesus. Christ is enough. And then the fifth illustration that Paul gives, stacking them all together, he said, is this is verse um, 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I think of, of the twisted way that Satan must have been just rejoicing when Jesus was suffering on the cross. From the very beginning, Satan tried to, to have Jesus put to death at his birth. He tried to tempt Jesus away from God's best in the wilderness. Step by step through his ministry, Satan was constantly resisting Jesus and trying to defeat him. And I imagine that on the cross, Satan must have had this twisted glee that finally he had put to death the author of life. And I picture him bragging to the spiritual powers, I've won, I've won, I've won. And then God raised Jesus from the dead, and he found out that it was on the cross that God accomplished forgiveness for all people. And Satan must have been destroyed. He was publicly shamed over the victory of Jesus on the cross. But here's why Christ is enough on this point. Christ is enough because Christ has overcome evil. Only Christ has overcome. What about the problem of evil in the world? Let's give it time. I've just finished reading a book on the, um, the capture of Berlin um, in World War II. And weeks before the city fell, everybody in the whole world, even them, well, except for the really twisted, messed up Nazis, almost everybody in the whole world knew the battle was, the war was won. It was just a matter of time before the, the Nazi Reich ultimately fell. It's the same on the cross. Jesus has defeated evil. Now, what he's done is he's called us to go on his mission to confront evil in the world based on the fact that we know that Jesus has the power to have already defeated it. All right, the five illustrations. I mean, it's not, it's not just like one, but Paul stacks them up one after another after another so that the Galatians and so that we realize we really are able to trust that Christ is enough. So just listen to them. Christ is enough because he gave us a spiritual circumcision that's cut away our sinful nature. Christ is enough because in baptism we were united to him so that we are empowered to be raised to live a new life. Christ is enough because we've been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life. Christ is enough because he's nailed our sins to the cross and erased every record of our wrong. And Christ is enough because he defeated evil by his victory in the cross. 
So Paul says to the Colossians, you don't need endless discussions. You don't need more philosophies. You don't need more legalistic rules. To us, he would say, you don't need more business. You don't need more better grades. You don't need to make more money or buy a nicer car. All those things are distractions from the fact that in Jesus, you are complete. You are enough because Christ is enough. I'm just going to read the last um, few verses of the text just to, to wrap this up, and then I'll give you the conclusion. So Paul says, so don't let anyone condemn you because you're already complete. Don't let anybody condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For Christ holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ. He set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, do this, do that, whatever it is the world is telling us? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate us as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desire. So what's all this mean? You know, if you're a new student in Boston... What's all this mean if you're trying to figure out your major, or you're trying to find a job, or trying to succeed in your vocation, or trying to, to grow your family? What's all this mean for the busyness in our lives? What's it mean for our mission in the world for Jesus? Brothers and sisters, this is the God-honest truth. You are good enough already. You are complete in Jesus already. You are enough because Christ is enough. You can stop your ceaseless strivings and rest in the fact that Jesus has he's, he's rescued you, he's given you life, he's empowered you to live in great thankfulness and great joy and in great significance as you carry out the mission that he has in the world, which means that we come back to the beginning. Let's do everything we can to make sure that we are continually walking with Jesus. Let's figure out what we can do together and individually to make sure that we are rooted deeply in Jesus. Let's do everything we can so that we build the foundations of our life and career and families and friendships that it's built on the foundation of Christ alone. So Thomas Akempis's phrase, whoever has Christ is rich, and has enough. Why don't you say that together with me? Together? Whoever has Christ is rich and has enough. Let's stand together. And we're going to say it one more time with the conviction that comes from this text. Together. Whoever has Christ is rich and has enough. Lord Jesus, How can we thank you enough for your blood shed for us on the cross and all the things that that released and enabled, all the things it conquered and the victories 
that it provides for us. How can we thank you enough? How can we thank you enough for a grace that is that amazing? And the only thing I can think of is that we walk continually with you. We get rooted deeply, deeply into you, and we build our lives upon you. Help us to do that in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.